Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting, as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine. I hope you're all listening and enjoying and reading. It is another fine day in self-isolation up here in Canada. I am so ecstatic to welcome my two guests today. These, This is the sort of conversation that happens all the time when I'm in Vegas with some of my best friends. And uh, normally this would happen over a delicious dinner. But uh, today we don't have a dinner available to us where we can all be in the same room. So I, I want to welcome my two good friends, Michael Keller. He is lighting designer and director at Amo Lighting out of Las Vegas, as well as both of our good friends, Ethan Weber. He is lighting designer and director out of Chicago. Thank you both so much for making an hour to sit and chat with me. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Absolutely. So what sparked this one is about a year ago, I tried really hard to put together an article about Michael Keller. So I reached out to a whole bunch of people and a lot of people would want to meet me for drinks and they would tell me some great stories about Michael Keller. And then whenever I asked them to put it in writing, they were like, no, 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 that, that story is not for writing. I would never, I would never put that in print and, or that I said that. So today I'm kind of reaching out to both of you guys so I can kind of hear some of these stories because I think this is a better medium. If we can actually hear it from the goat's mouth, maybe these stories will hold some validity that people will actually believe some of the stories that I've heard about Michael Keller. And so Ethan Webb, you're here because you're kind of, you you get to play straight man to Michael Keller's uh, debauchery. So thanks. So hopefully you can uh, kind of provide us some, some relative professionalism to Michael Keller's uh, wild world of rock and roll antics. So that's kind of what sparked this. So I, I thank you guys both for, making time to hang out with me. Thanks, well, it's been great. Thank you. Uh, we'll have to do it again sometime. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start from the beginning. Let's start with you, Ethan. How did you get into this industry? Was it the rock and roll lifestyle or was it a paycheck? Uh, I think back then it was just needed a job, really. I was in I was in college and playing in a, a silly little rock band, and um, I think uh, I I got involved with the concert committee up there, and it was it was pretty. We had some pretty decent acts. You two in their early days, Eddie Grant, if anybody remembers him, Squeeze, bunch of people, 
and Abby Rosen was was uh, a couple years ahead of me, so I met her when and moved down to New York with the band. With the band, needed a job, called up Abby. She said, "Come on in." And the next thing you know, I quit the band and started touring with uh, silly little music tours. So silly. It was. Was that, was that, that was mostly C Factor? I started off at C Factor, yeah. So you yes. went from being a silly little band member to lighting silly little bands. Yes, yeah. What paid that? Uh, <laughs> was that your big dream to, to make it as a musician? Uh, no, I didn't really have a dream. It was just, you know, especially back then, it was, I think it was more like the Wild West. You just kind of did what you did, really, and didn't really think about it just kind of uh i don't know how about you keller was it uh was it a similar path were you trying to be a rock star first uh in high school i tried to be a singer then found out i didn't really couldn't sing then i tried to be a guitar player and then found out that just because your guitar had the most pickups didn't make you a guitar player <laughs> so so then i sat at a lighting company uh, we had a liquid light show in the high school and then I'd I'm starting to find out that a lot of those old things are new again. Oh, yeah. yeah. Liquid light shows. I think they're back. I think, I think your liquid light shows are still cool, Keller. Well, I, we had a company. Well, the company was formed around a bunch of, uh, you know, overhead projectors and slide projectors mm -hmm. that a friend of mine acquired. And after our first show at our high school, we were um, detained because he had acquired them from the high schools. <laughs> he didn't, he yeah, didn't there's an abundance us. of overhead projectors there. Yes, there were at the, in those days. So and that was I your did, lighting rig. That was, that was the, uh, then I had some <laughs> coffee, coffee cans with uh, colored par 36s. And, you know, and <laughs> put them at the high school dances. This is the perfect introductory story to this podcast. <laughs> Ethan comes in with all the best of intentions and Keller comes in with burglary. <laughs> <laughs> well, you had to start someplace. <laughs> no, no, just you. You're the only one that came into the lighting industry through forms of burglary. Well, well there, there are some stories about R.A. Roth in, uh, in the Square Park and days, though. <laughs> and uh, acquiring things some, somewhat suspiciously. Slinging mud already. That's yeah. awesome. So you had, you, wanted, you had a microphone and you were singing, and you had a bunch of stolen overhead projectors. What, well, I, the, what led the you band, to think that this was going to be a uh, a lifelong career for you, Keller? Well, I, even when I was a kid, in my in my bedroom, colored lights always have, you know I always noticed how colored lighting changed the atmosphere. I had posters in the room, and I had flashing you know colored red, blue, and green lights in my room, and I kind of followed that path. When I got um, near 18, I moved to the Bay Area, to the East Bay, and met up with a, a gentleman who had a production company over there, very small, called Gold Rush Productions. 
and I lived at his house and uh, did all his concert stuff, which was basically small theaters. Then he had a nightclub in the in Walnut Creek, which I was the uh, resident lighting person, and I had uh, Luxtral or rotary dimmers that I had made, and that's basically where it started. A band called um, the Rowan Brothers played there, and their manager asked, you know, said, oh, you did okay, and uh, asked me, uh, he gave me a number, and it was for uh, FM Productions, and I kept bugging them, and finally I got a job at FM, which was Bill Graham's production company. Mm -hmm. So were you getting paid in, in weed oh, then, or drink. were you getting paid no, in actual dollars? Uh, actual dollars probably, but maybe $25, you know. It, it's a pretty long time ago. Uh, tell me you were hanging out on Haight Street at the same time you were... I visited Haight. I went to the Fillmore West twice, but I ended up uh, working at Winterland, which is Bill's uh, venue after Winterland. So I mean, you were there right in the, the heyday, right? Oh, yeah. I said That's when San Francisco was what we all think of San Francisco. Yes, I was very fortunate. It's How about you, Ethan? Did you, uh, you start to realize that you could make money uh, doing lighting instead of music? Uh, I don't know. Probably still haven't realized it. I mean, I started off at C-Factor <laughs> and we were making about $4 an hour in the shop for 80 hours a week and then went out on tour for maybe $200 a week and $25 a day per diem. So it's, it's taken me a while to catch up. I think I was there for about 10 years. But, you know, like you said, you, you did it because you loved it, and it was fun. Mm -hmm. And it was like running yeah. away with the circus. Yeah, de yeah, definitely none of us are going to become millionaires anytime soon. No. No, but... I don't know. If, it, if you do something you like, it's worth everything, isn't it? Pretty yeah, much. Absolutely. Don't, we, we don't go to work. We get to go do what we like to do. Yeah. So, Keller, when was the first time you ended up sleeping on a bus? When was the last time you, when was the first time you decided it was time to give up a house gig and go out, get out on the road? I never, well, after, actually, probably mid-70s because... I was when I being the house LD at Winterland, I wanted to go out on the George Harrison tour. And actually before I was the house LD, they offered me, I wanted to go on George Harrison and they offered me the Winterland gig instead. And I took that. And then uh, first road tour was, I think ELO when they were an opening band. And that was my first road tour. And that was, mid 70s early 70s and fill us in on what that was like first time touring as little young keller with a head full of hair and oh god stunning good looks and a, and a singing voice to boot well we were all pirates back then we could get away with anything i mean we didn't really i mean it was it was just debauchery pretty much <laughs> And the, the whole backstage pass thing, that was all for real. The things that all my wife thinks that I'm doing now are the things that you were actually doing back then. You were trading 
backstage passes for for all access pretty much yeah i mean we were, i mean with elo we were using like our rental cars as bump uh, bumper cars we destroy cars we just you know we'd have fun we woke i woke up one morning and our our rental car was in a pool someone had driven it into a pool it was like oh okay call up the insurance you know, the rental car company and say we need another one that someone couldn't have been you could it no it was not me we had a very good english crew and they were taking you know, the english over over here very you know and they were having the time of their lives too so at that time elo would just call up the the record label and the record label would say hey so one of our guys sank a car so open the paycheck or open the checkbook and take care of that right well they always would pay they would pay the rental car full coverage insurance so okay and that yeah. included swimming pool well it it, it included every, pretty much you know they said hey it's full coverage right yep full okay. coverage yeah be, because touring didn't need to make money then you just needed to be out enough to sell records that's exactly. where the money came from exactly t-shirts were you know they weren't selling t-shirts for 40 dollars no there was one manager no accountant you know there's a lot of debauchery okay but it came Even, from the top as well didn't it oh I mean, god yeah the bands were doing the same thing oh yeah and yeah. i mean you i you uh, asked the question when were they were you ever friends with bands back then of course you were friends we all traveled together we were all in the same bus in the same plane and uh it was one family once they became multiple managers and accountants it changed everything there was a uh, segregation between the band and the crew would you say that your position was safe or more safe back then because they just didn't know any other lighting guys they they would just think well keller's a lighting guy we got to keep him how long is it going to take us to find another person who can run lights Pretty much so. I mean, there was a, a, a friendship also besides this, just the career part of it. And you'd hang out together, you'd get high together, you know. It was, it was, it was great. It was good times back then. I would imagine that even the manager, you guys would all fit on one bus. You, the band, you guys were all hanging out and did... Was there any sort of instruction back then, or did they just need you to do a general amount of lights? Did they just say, hey, you're the lighting guy, do whatever it is that you do, or did they actually have preferences as to the way no, that the show I, should look? No, not then, no. I had pretty much carte blanche back then. And there was, there was no YouTube back then, so you know, bands would have to rely on on what you said it, it what you say it looks like what their friends what the management says it looks like as well which makes a big difference I so think. in that case i would imagine you had to just manage relationships more than you did lighting because it was really about you making them feel like they were getting the best product pretty much so i mean being able to work with through it like with fm fm brought me bands like santana and jefferson starship and the grateful dead to work with because bill was connected to all those mm -hmm. and i was fortunate enough to be able to work with those those bands 
you, there was no website needed. There was no <laughs> resume. There was no internet. There was no internet. It was just Michael Keller's a good dude. You should hire him. Yeah. Or uh, Michael Keller can hold his liquor. He doesn't throw up often. You should totally take him out on tour with you. Pretty much. Well, no, I can't say that. I think there was a, <laughs> a sense of professionalism, but at the same time, um, there wasn't a bunch of people looking over your shoulder and critiquing every second of everything. Did you have a similar experience, Ethan? Were you able to actually co-mingle with your, your first few bands? Um, some of them. I've always tried to keep my distance a little bit. I mean, you know, I'm, you're friendly with them, but not not always hanging out. I mean, some of the tours we used to be on the same bus. I was a few years later. I, I started, my first tour was 1984. Okay. So I think there was a little bit more separation there. I mean, there was still intermingling, but, but probably not quite the same. I think the, uh, you know, there was a, I worked with Howie Mandel for a couple of years. We used to travel together and became pretty friendly. And, and um, I, I, the, the band, the old band, I think we, that was the only musical band that I shared a, uh, a bus with. But uh, to get back to what I was talking about with Keller, were they actually making oh, requests of you oh, sorry. Uh, for how the way the, the show is supposed to look? Yeah, I'm a step behind. No, uh, that's fine. Not, not so much. A lot of it was feel back then because you had the heat of the park hands. Mm -hmm. That's why when when we had when we switched over to Moving Lights, there were, you know, there were some of the older bands that just they thought that something was wrong because they didn't feel the heat. And a lot of it, you know, you you flashing lights, they can feel the heat off uh, bouncing around their back. So, mm -hmm. I think it, I think it was as much feel as as sensing how what it looked like. Um, oh, I can only imagine how much of a difference that must have been for bands to be able to just have 180k behind them one day and then you know 200 moving lights the next and they know they have a bigger rig but they just don't have the same sensations yeah. Yeah. we put a thermometer they come to you. Uh, we, we put a thermometer on, on Tina Turner private dancer we put a thermometer at her mic stand and turned on the lights for 10 minutes and it it was 151 degrees at her mic stand <laughs> wow yeah i mean i would imagine that was something you had to do out on. of necessity yeah they, they wouldn't you'd never have them on that long but that's the potential and why we and now it's odd that where did all that power come from back then because it seems like we weren't carrying generators but we sure had a lot, you know, 600 park hands up there. It's a, it's a lot of power. <laughs> right. Yeah, but it wasn't a constant draw, you know. True. It was, yeah. But there wasn't anybody yeah. doing balanced loads then either, you know what I mean? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> I would imagine there was a lot of uh, blown fuses too then, though. Oh, God, yeah. In fact, as far as I recall, for quite a while, that was the measure of a good LD was the amount of parkans that you had on your tour with you. Then the more parkans you had, the better an LD you were. Uh, it was a David Davidian on uh, Van Halen tour designed these pods. 
then they figured out that to go under bridges, they had to have drop down uh, trailers because the pods were so big, they wouldn't go underneath overpasses. Well, were those, those were the ones that wouldn't fit out the door of uh, show lights, weren't they? Pretty much, yeah. And they lo tried to load them in the, out, out of the shop. Brilliant, though. So is this, yeah. is this about the time that you guys are starting to cross paths is in the mid-80s? Really, we didn't really work a lot together because we do the same job. So mm -hmm. um, the blessing for us is corporate where we got to actually work together. Yeah, Michael, Michael got me hooked into the car shows a few years, a few years ago. So it's the only time we've really been able to work together, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I wouldn't imagine you guys got to be on any tours together, did you? No, it doesn't happen very often. I think I met you, didn't you? Did you do uh, Steve Winwood for a while? No. Are you sure? An, I'm pretty sure, unless I was really drinking, but I don't think so. Huh. <laughs> Never mind. I don't know when I met you then. I don't know. I mean... Did you guys ever have the same clients? Uh, like I would imagine Van Halen would be something that maybe you guys both worked. Yeah, <laughs> I covered for, uh, well, I tried to cover for Ethan because he was, um, his twins were being brought into this world and he asked me to take over Van Halen for him. And I didn't do quite the job that I was expecting to do. They didn't give him a chance. David Lee, Roth, David Lee Roth was a bit of a, was a, a uh, piece of work back then, I think. Were you a I sacrificial lamb, Michael Keller? Uh, pretty much so, but to work in any position where you have to walk on eggshells all the time, it just, it really isn't worth it. <laughs> That's uh, not Michael Keller. I mean, I, no, I mean, I, the first time you get fired, it hurts. Second time, still hurts a little third time you know you're going to be working the next week someplace mm -hmm. yeah. so it didn't really you know, i i was happier not to have to worry about everything every you know like it just wasn't a happy place to be there did you go out in a blaze of glory not really um i did a, a total blackout queue and the only spot that didn't black out was the one on david and you know, it's like, yes, David, I told him not to, I said all spots black out except for David. Yeah, right. No, I did not. <laughs> but I was, it was fine. I, it, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, you to, to be fair though, I, I had, I went back there for a couple of weeks and this was a, um, it was not my design. Um, it was a Phil Ely design that I had taken over for him. And I went back after Michael left and I was in the dressing room and, and uh, David Lee Roth said, you know, we didn't, we didn't give Michael a fair chance. Oh, that's nice to hear. Yeah. But he's still, he's still a unique individual. Yeah. Yeah. His reputation far precedes him on, uh, on being tough on the crew. Yeah. And it, it's just not worth it. You know, I, one of the questions I've always asked management, production manager, whoever, when when you get the call, are, are they nice guys? Because it's just not worth dealing with. That is really important. Yeah, unless there's shitloads of money there. Just, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> yeah. So there's, there's a couple of them out there that are quite uh, unique to work with, you know. So 
you have to do your best. Some people are able to do so. Cosmo's very good at dealing with certain acts where I, I couldn't. So, yeah. I mean, my philosophy is always, is always if, um, you know, I've done a couple of years with the Stones. I always say if Mick Jagger doesn't yell at me, nobody else has, none of these other people have the right to yell at me. And, and he doesn't, you know, there was one day he was pissed off about something. I walked in the dressing room. I said, don't yell at me. He said, I don't yell, but let's talk about it. And that was it. You know, talked, wow. about, it, talked about it like, like a gentleman and we ironed it out in the, you know, 10 seconds and that was it. Oh, that was a very clear boundary to be set right there. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Keller? Do you set your boundaries as early and as straightforward as Ethan well, does? I, I mean, I was joking when I said it, to be, to be honest. Yeah, I, yeah, still. But, but yeah. I, I'm very fortunate that the Osborne camp's been very somewhat loyal to me. Mm -hmm. And um, actually very loyal to me. And the only time that Ozzy, Ozzy doesn't really say anything about the lighting. And the only time he had is because we had a spotlight operator in Germany who didn't follow Ozzy, just put the light on the teleprompter. And that's the one thing that uh, Ozzy didn't care for. And, and we ended up having to, and we were trying to get the guy to turn it off and he keeps on that on the inter, uh, intercom going, my intercom is not working, We're like, but we can hear you. So we ended up having to douse the light because he would never move it, so. That's not what follow spots are for. That you got that right. <laughs> that uh, that was just Thank a not follow, follow spot. Thank you for following me. Some the technology has its benefits, definitely. Absolutely. I just had a guy in Detroit. I was doing another comedian, Sebastian Maniscalco. We're doing an in the round, you know, sold out show at whatever the arena is there. And uh one of the spot ops, the opening act, he opens up wide, washes the whole stage, and leaves it there for for <laughs> two hours. <laughs> you know, at first you're trying to be pleasant, and then you know you're a little more forceful, and then you just give up because obviously nothing you could do. And it's a house spot. What are you going to do? You know. Anyway. Yeah, in Detroit, nonetheless, they don't really they don't take kindly to any sort of any sort of uh, shenanigans uh, oh no i'm sorry it wasn't detroit it was boston okay and they had split it there was uh two ia uh operators and they were great and then there was two ibw ones and it was one of the ibw guys see back That's in the tough. early days i would never want to meet the spot operators beforehand because if i'm going to yell at somebody i don't want <laughs> i want to i don't want to know who i'm yelling at especially if he's huge or something I'm the other way. I figure if they see me, they'll take pity on me <laughs> and, and they'll, you know, I like to personalize it. Like, What's the most spots you've ever had in a show? Uh, I don't know, maybe 14 or 16. Yeah. Wow. Is that the stones? Yeah. And the, some of the old, old ones, we always have eight out front and, and we used to try to get at least six in the back. How about you, Keller? I would imagine I with the Osbournes, yeah. you only have... No, but Janet, we had 18, and I'd call it like a, almost like a football game because I'd either have man-to-man -man 
or zones and okay. tell spots to either hit your zone area or hit your man, you know, pick up your mans. And down the zones, you go to the zone, whoever you're hitting, stay with them until I tell you to rezone or do something different. All right. Because there wasn't enough time to call it one spot one. I want you know. No, you got to, when you got that many, you got to group them. So one of the reasons I like uh, that I chose to lump you two together into this one is because you both are had such long careers with one prolific legendary band. I can only imagine you guys both have some good stories of growing pains with your bands. And I would imagine we can learn how to do it and how not to do it from Michael Keller. And so I'm kind of thinking well, of just some good stories about how. Yeah. <laughs> um, Ethan and I both have a common factor of, of, of Dale or Opie in our lives. And he, um, he brought me into the Osbournes. I don't know who brought you into Stones, but he's there with the Stones. So. Yeah, Opie, um, Jake was there originally when I first got there. Jake was production and Opie was the, was the it, stage manager. Okay. I came in through, I had done a Keith solo tour. And I, so I came in through Keith's manager and Patrick. So Ethan, let's kind of, kind of see if we can pinpoint the moment that you went from new kid on the block to established part of the team. When were you first comfortable enough to say like, well, I'm, I'm, I work for the stones now and I'm going to be here for a while. I'm still not comfortable. Every time I get the every time I get the call back, I'm amazed. <laughs> are you, are you sure? Yeah, you know, I, I don't know. I started the first tour I did. Um, there was talk of me being one of. There were three board operators. I was going to potentially be one of the three, but I didn't know the the. Back then, it was a whole hog one. So Patrick asked me if I'd crew chief it. I said, "Yeah, you know, I just want to be part of the tour." And then from there, the next tour, Mark Risk and I did it, and then. I don't know. I just kept getting the call back, but like I said, I mean, to this day, I'm still surprised. So you, do you feel like you're still walking on eggshells sometimes, or do you feel like you actually have some sort of credibility and some, uh, some authority? Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm one of the last ones on the crew standing there, I guess. I, you know, I just, every time I think about it, I think, well, is Mick really going to want to have to worry about, you know, whether the audience is lit up in brown sugar or something. And then I think, mm -hmm. well, you know, of course he's not, they're not going to want to start over. They're comfortable. He's comfortable talking with me. You know, Patrick and I have a, a, a very good relationship. I think Terry, who's Terry Cook, who you know, has, mm -hmm. has come on board. We get along great. So. Right. Yeah. It sounds like it's a long road to get to that level of, uh, for lack of a better term, comfort, or at least uh, some sort of expectation that you might get a call? Probably only, only because of my insecurities, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Takes a big man to admit that. Uh, yeah, but I mean, every time you go back, it just feels like an old home. And yeah, I don't know. All right. So how about you, Keller? What was it like when, uh, did you ever realize that you weren't the new kid on the block anymore and that you might continue to get called back? Uh, well, in the 80s, I, I did a lot of stuff for multiple designers. I, I, was, I was very fortunate to work with some of the top names 
Mark Brickman was probably one person who was very influential in my career. Peter Morris, very much so. Patrick. And uh, back then, I was uh, back in the eighties. I was I was jumping from band to band because I was just staying busy. I did uh, five years with Tina, and then I actually the predecessor on that actually was uh, Lionel Richie with Peter Morris. And we did uh, five years with Lionel or about four years with Lionel. And then I uh, went to Tina and then from Tina, which was a uh, Mark in the, yeah, it was Mark in the beginning. I took it over and then I went Oh, after a while, it all blends together. I'm sorry. <laughs> so once that you was, moved uh, to yeah. Ozzy, it sounds like it was Opie that brought you into Ozzy. Yeah, Opie, but that was almost in the 90s. Okay. The 80s were a lot of Peter, a lot of uh, Mark bringing me on board. There, I was worked for a company called Morpheus back in the old days. And that's how I got onto the Tina tour with Mark Brickman. And I was the Panda Spot operator, and we, we were going to be released because Mark th didn't think the lighting was doing what it was supposed to do. And then um, I overheard that. I, I talked to the manager. I said, no, the lighting will do it. It's just, let me show you what it can do. So they kept me and let Mark go. Okay. But Mark was off to do Roger or back uh, off to do Floyd anyway. So he had plenty of fish. Oh yeah, plenty of fish in the sea. And he brought me back to do McCartney with him. So uh, yeah, All I was right. very fortunate. So you, know, you, fin you finally got to do your Beatle then. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The only man, there's actually the only real artist I've ever been semi nervous meeting. And by the end of the tour, I, I, my daughter would be in the dressing room playing with her uh, video games with her son, uh, with his son. And I was like, yeah, oh, whatever. <laughs> what, it, was a, it was a warm, it was a wonderful tour and a great family. The whole experience was wonderful. Right. So uh, once you made it to Ozzy, did you feel like band loyalty still existed? Do you feel like bands um, are still willing to like really invest in their lighting designer directors? Yeah, not in the beginning, no, honestly, because I mean, we were starting out with Ozfest and basically we did almost seven years of Ozfest in a row. And then uh, when Ozzy did his other non-Ozfest tours, they kept me on board. So, Yes, that part was, they've been very good about that. And I took, a, I, I took a break from them to go do John Mayer for a while. And after three years of that, they, they brought me back. They let me come back to Ozzy. Nice. So they kept your seat warm for you? Yeah, pretty much. It was nice of them. That was very nice of them. You did, you did Aerosmith for a while. Yeah. That, that was a long run, wasn't it? It, it was two years of my design and then another designer was brought in. They kept me on board and that's where it all kind of went south. 
So you just touched on something that's really important that I, I would imagine both of you two have dealt with, whereas you have been a designer with a band and then another designer is brought in, but they still like you enough to keep you as a director and vice versa. How do you guys keep those roles separately between designer and director? And we'll start with you, Ethan. I know that you're a designer and a director on different projects. How do you keep those two roles separate? Uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to answer this right, but you know, I keep in mind if I'm the director, I treat the designer like I would want a director to treat me. You know, obviously they, you know, I, I'm, if I'm working for a designer, I want to have some input. I'm not, you know, that's the beauty of somebody like Patrick. He gives you, he gives you a lot of leeway mm -hmm. and then he'll come in and critique it. And same thing, you know, if I, if I have somebody, a designer working for me, I want them to, to have some say in it. If I'm not there, he should be able to have free reign to, if he's got to program a new song, change, change some things. So it sounds like when you're a designer, you put a lot of uh, trust and faith into your directors to let them kind of guide some of the looks? I, I, not so much because I like to program it myself. So I'll program it, but, you know, I, you know, I'll program it and then run it and ask their opinion or see if, see if there's something they're, they're hearing that I'm not hearing maybe, or, but I, I think it's more, it's probably more after I'm gone that I give them a little more autonomy. If, okay. that, makes, if that makes any sense. So you still enjoy being behind the console? Yeah, I like because half of half of the stuff that I think actually looks good are mistakes because I'm such a crap programmer. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm trying to do one thing and you end up with something else. I'm like, well, that's kind of cool. Yeah, we'll roll with that. Yeah, nice one. <laughs> How about you, Keller? When do you when do you take the designer hat off and put the director hat on and and vice versa? Well, normally if I'm a designer, I'm going to be directing it too. I've never had too many opportunities where I turn it over to somebody. So it kind of works one-on-one. -on -one. Um, Ethan and I are very fortunate to work with uh, Terry Cook, who works with Patrick, and uh, lovely, lovely designer. But I know that we frustrate the shit out of them. <laughs> because... Yes we're both set in our ways we know the cues that we want to see and he he's just like no nah, okay fine uh, here, <laughs> work with this part you do this for me you can do that <laughs> yeah i i have a run, running joke with terry he'll make, make a suggestion i'll say terry i'll do it but as soon as you leave i'm changing it back to the way i want to do it anyway <laughs> so we might as well do it my i mean it's a, it's a running joke but yeah yeah, uh, if I, uh, I'm happy to indulge myself in my own Michael Keller story. Uh, when I get to sit and program Ozzy with him on the, the most recent tour, <laughs> it was the same thing to the point that Keller could hold Terry hostage because <laughs> Keller would just say, well, yeah, you can spend an hour trying to do it the way that's not mine, but as soon as you're gone, I'm going to do it my way anyway. So feel free. Yeah, you can yeah. you can waste as much time as you want, and all too often it worked out exactly the way Keller said it was going to. Terry and I would sit and we would fumble at something for an hour, and Keller would sit there and twiddle his thumbs and stare at the ceiling, 
And after about an hour, we'd be like, Keller, what would you do? He's like, I told you an hour ago what I would do. And that was right. That was what we ended up doing. Because we have, we have a running you know, joke. There's no magenta in, in Ozzy. So, yeah, because Terry didn't want magenta. So I took the palette names and I changed them to different names. <laughs> so there was no magenta. <laughs> According to that, it said Terry slightly pink. But you know that very nice. That goes that goes back to working with a band for however many years. You know, you know what they want to see, and you know if they've been doing this, a song for fifty years. We tried to we tried to uh, change "Sympathy for the Devil" once, and you know because it was always red, and I think we turned it into Congo Blue or something. And it's the only Keith, comment Keith has ever had about lighting. <laughs> he, he saw a video of the show and he said, sympathy is red. And you're like, okay. okay. Enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, it's got to be hard uh, for people like me, for one, but for you guys who've been with the band for so many years, you're like, hey, let's try something new. Don't change anything, but also make it new. Uh, we're doing a new tour. We're doing the same songs, but it's a new tour. Can you please change everything without changing anything. Yeah. Yeah. You have to give it a, look, a new look, but keep a lot of the, the same feel to it. The cues are the same. The songs are the same. You're not going to add an extra four cues in the middle of a verse because they're not there, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, going through a lot of Keller's programming, he's like, yeah, if you add a cue there, you're going to ruin everything because I, my finger is going to hit yeah. here because that's yeah. where it's hit for the last decade. Yeah. 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 I was trying yeah. to be nice by saying decade. I didn't want to say 20 years, <laughs> but thanks for, thank you for giving me a pass on that one. That's okay. That's, that's I'm just happy to be, I'm so happy to still be here. <laughs> <laughs> We're happy you're still around too, Keller. If anybody has ever tried to walk around at the LDI show floor with Michael Keller, it's almost impossible. Everybody's <laughs> excited, half dismayed, half in awe, half ecstatic <laughs> to see you, but they're all, they're all glad you're still around and with us. I'm Keller. very fortunate to be in a business that I get to work with friends. And that's that's, that's very, it, it does make it a little more special. You know, he was um, Parnelli Award winner a couple of years ago, wasn't it? Was it two years ago, Michael? Yeah, it was 2016. It goes quickly. All right. Yep. Yeah. Very proud of you. Well, yeah, but that and 25 cents, I might be able to. No, I can't even go to Starbucks. <laughs> you can't get anything at Starbucks for 25 cents. I know. What about Ethan? What about for the most horror story during a show that happened? He went like, oh my God. It used to be my my line every show on the Lou Reed in the early days. It'd be I'd be on on Ed's and I'm like, oh my God, what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> it's a common occurrence. I don't know. There was a time uh, I was at doing Stones at Madison Square Garden, and um, they changed the set list, and somebody came up to show me what the next song was going to be, and they hit the, they didn't realize it was a touch screen and. Next thing you know, in the middle of the garden, you know, <laughs> uh, lights flip out. There was a time that uh, the uh, 
dimmers caught on fire right at the start of a show in Germany. That was impressive. I, I don't know. Most of them I've, I've put out of my mind now. What about you? Um, Billy Idol, we had moving trust cues between songs and when the song started, there's a truss hanging by its cable pick because he forgot to turn on the cable pick on the truss move. And it was like, holy shit. <laughs> it, wow. it, was, it was safe. I mean, it was secure. It, it, he fixed it, but holy shit. And then during a video shoot once with the Scorpions and uh, we were in Germany, my wonderful friend Art Rich tripped by the dimmer racks and hit he thought he hit the breaker and because that the Avo racks were opposite down was on and up was off right but they were down so he turned them up thinking he was saving it and he killed the console during a video shoot <laughs> and like oh great <laughs> so there's those those are unique moments we're very blessed with to right realize it, it is yeah. just a job I mean, it, it, we're very fortunate that yeah. nobody gets hurt when, hopefully no one gets hurt when something goes wrong. There, there, was, um, there was another, it was a different band, but it was a stadium show and there was a song where you light up, light up the audience. Like, I don't know how many mall bulbs we had, but it was enough to light up downtown Manhattan. And I hit, I hit the big audience cue at the wrong moment and you could just feel the entire stadium turning around and looking, <laughs> looking at me. <laughs> That's a lot very, of eyes. Yeah, very impressive. <laughs> Keller, it's things like that that allow OSHA to get into our industry and kind of de-pirate our ship. They come in and they realize that we're, we're doing dangerous things. Uh, well, yes and no. I mean, when we started out, there were no harnesses. You climb the truss. If you fail, you're weeding out the weed and clinks, you know. You shouldn't have been up there to begin with. I mean, how many times have you seen like a spot op go up on a ladder and all of a sudden freeze on the ladder? Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, great. What, what, why are you doing this job if you're not ready for it? Yeah, sometimes you don't know until you're halfway up the ladder, I guess. Well, it's it. Well, a if you're paying for a union operator or operators, it shouldn't be school. I'm sorry. I used to be very tolerant about that, but now I, as I get older, it's not school. You're paying for you know experienced operators, and it's very frustrating. And I'll go into the steward and, and rip, you know, yell and scream after a show if something's like that happens, because it's not right. It's, a, it's the most important light of the show, the spotlights. Yeah. yeah. I, we, we used to have trade unions that were designed to teach people before they started getting paid. I don't know if that's still the case uh, nationwide. I know that it, they still exist in pockets, but I don't know if internships and pre-show training are the priority anymore. Right. Are you guys running into that? No, there isn't. Not I mean, so much, certain yeah. places, but if you're in some bumfuck town, it's kind of difficult to, to uh, expect that. All right. Now, Ethan, did you ever have to deal with carbon arcs? Yes. All of Yes. Yeah. 
what that was always I mean, and they were and they were great operators and they were shit operators yeah there yeah. were some guys who, who could uh who could trim their spots in 10 seconds and others would be gone for two minutes yeah. and then they stopped they started switching over and you'd always have to go to the steward or the electrician at the start of the morning and say are you you got carbons are these are these been retrofitted and a lot of times they'd say they'd be retrofitted and you'd go into your spot meeting and they say well i'm going to need some i'm like bullshit you know, I fucking checked. Those are xen those are xenon spots now. Yeah. I mean, that's happened. That happened more than once. You'd have to call them out on their shit. Yeah, I'm gonna need a, a two minute break every every yeah. couple of minutes. Like, no, you don't. No, you one don't. of my one of my favorites was I was doing a band called New Edition, which there were five members in, and halfway through the show, I was in. Spot five, your man's in the dark. Spot five, your man's in the dark. Cover your man, spot five. Hello, this is spot four. I just saw spot five walk past and he said they can't handle this music. <laughs> I'm like, oh, really? Thank you very much. If only it was that easy. If only if it was just that easy to just, hey, I don't like this music. I'm out. I quit. <laughs> I had one time where the uh, spot operator threw up on all the other spots and all of a sudden the spotlights just all went flying. I'm like, what the fuck is going on up there? Spot, uh, spot three just threw up over everybody. It's like, oh God. I, I had just last, last year, some, a spot op said, and it was not raining out. Somebody said, I'm getting, I'm getting water. <laughs> and we looked over and the, uh, the spotlight above them had taken his shirt off and was trying to wipe his spot down. He, he pissed himself. <laughs> and, and went and drenched the, the spot up underneath him. And you always tell him, you know, it's a long show. Personally, I don't drink anything after like four or five in the afternoon. I would suggest that you mm -hmm. do the same. Take a bottle of water up there with you. But Yeah, we don't realize how often we pee until we're stuck in a truss for three hours yeah I back don't know. in the 80s back in the 80s we made sure we drank entire day so yeah it was never an issue <laughs> it was quite a bit of a enjoyment back then you just pickled yourself then you just kept it all inside and well we were tight. like on tina we were sponsored by pepsi who imported stoli and every day two bottles of stoli would show up to the bus and after a while, you kind of have to learn how to pace yourself. <laughs> in yeah, the morning, it was a screwdriver. In the afternoon, it'd be a vodka soda. And then in the evening, it'd be vodka. It's only taken you like 35 years to learn pace. I haven't really quite mastered it yet. Still working on it. I'm still <laughs> trying, yeah. It's gonna take a lot more than some Pepsi and some Stoli to kill, to kill Keller. Yeah. It's so, immortal. do you guys think that the corporatization of the industry has made things? And I don't like to use the word better or worse, but do you think it's made them bigger or more prolific? Uh, do you think the additional money in touring now has made it more beneficial? And we'll start with Ethan on that one. I don't know if it's beneficial. I think it's just changed. I mean, 
I don't know if it's, you know, everybody says it, but it's probably true. It's, and well, actually, I don't know. I don't know if it's because I'm older now, you know, it'd be interesting to see what the young, the younger generation has to say. Cause to me, I still love it. It's still fun, but it's not quite as fun as it used to be because it's more business-like, you know, mm -hmm. there's 20 trucks going into an arena instead of five or six trucks. So yeah, so I don't I think, think it, the, the pandemic might uh, change that back. Yeah, we, yeah, we think it's going to yeah. start start going back to let's let's go out with a cheap ticket, smaller productions. But it, you know, you take it for what it is. I mean, you still love what you do. So if it, like anything in life, it changes and you just roll with it. I guess. Yeah. I so know. how about you, Keller? On one hand, corporatization makes it so that you can actually have a real job, but on the other hand corporatization makes it so that you might need to report to a, an HR department. Well, uh, which one do you find? Number uh, one is there might more. be more money. There's more money, but I haven't seen any of it. <laughs> it, sure, it passes. It, that went right straight past me. There's 15 or tw there's probably 40 extra people out on the tour doing jobs that, you know, are essential. I, have, I will be politically correct. But at the same time, it's like, are you kidding me? They do, what, 20 minutes in the afternoon, and that's their job? <laughs> and they, they probably make more than I do, you know? Hey, kid, what do you do on this tour? Like, I don't know. I'm the... And I was the HR guy out on Ozzy, so... <laughs> oh, I, I remember. I remember. Yeah. You Boy, were the only that. one who would have to report on yourself to HR yeah. department. Give me your story. Tell me in detail. Do you have video? Um, <laughs> it, it is. Times have changed quite quite a bit. I have to say. Yes, it's for the better in many ways, but being a pirate was a lot of fun. Uh, you're a great pirate. Uh, they were good times. So both of you guys have very impressive resumes in the rock and roll world. Do you find that that helps you when you come to the corporate world? Do you find that they're like, ah, oh, this is the guy from Ozzy or, Hey, this is the guy from the stones. Does that help you in the negotiation process? You want to handle that one, Michael? Let's go with well, you first. Kelly. I, I think um, it depends on who you're showing it to. Some people are very, you know, like, Oh my God, it's a rolling Stones or it's Ozzy. But then some people don't really give a flying fuck, you know. <laughs> Light the cars, fuckface. I don't personally. I don't. I I don't like broadcasting, and I just want to be. I don't tell anybody anything, and then you know, occasionally people will find say, "Hey, you know, I heard you do, you do this," and you definitely feel like you command a, a little more respect. But I I don't broadcast it because I don't want people to treat me like that because they think well you know i do like when i go out with this comedian we we go to a lot of um local theaters and we use whatever the house house sites are mm -hmm. and you and you know you spend your day with the guy and you treat him whatever and occasionally you get somebody who comes up as, and says hey somebody told me you do this I'm like yeah but you know now i do this yeah Just get get on with it it's not a big deal but who's the guy that who worked for what is it Paul Revere or something like that you were talking about? <laughs> yeah. No, it was uh, I can't remember. Um, it was brilliant. <laughs> who did Money Money? 
Who did the uh, song Money Money? Yeah, well. Yeah, I can't remember. I don't know. Just it, It's still a great story. <laughs> yeah. The problem is nowadays, uh, you might have a resume you know, showing off all these great older bands. And then, but some of the kids and some of the people don't really give a you know, care. Uh, what DJ did you work for last week? Or it's like, oh, well, hold on. No, I haven't. Yeah. So it's a, it's a whole nother world out there. So if you were to give advice to somebody who was coming up and they were both gunning for your jobs, what information would you give to the kids that are trying to be the next Ethan Weber or Michael Keller? And we'll start with you, Ethan, on this one. Um, I don't know. It's mainly just about working hard and being a nice person. I think, you know, treat people, everybody, I don't care who they are. You know, if it's a guy sweeping the floor in the arena or whatever, you just treat people with respect and work hard and keep your head down and, you know, a little bit of humility, I think. It's all about hard work. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. nobody, nobody, not too many people get, get this handed handed to them you know nobody's impressed by what you did or who your father is or who this person is or that person it's all about what you can show them yeah, that's great how about you keller what what advice would you give to the next the next generation well it depends if i like the kid or not but <laughs> um as i've always had a theory that you can learn something from a a rookie as much as you can learn from someone something from a veteran because sometimes the rookie comes up with a great idea and you're Mm -hmm. like oh yeah you know that is a good idea so it is the hard work but uh, there's many times have you had this happen where people walk up to you and go oh i'd love to do that for a summer it's like no it's not just a summer gig It, it it is an it's an it's a lifetime of work and if you're going to go someplace in it it's going to take a while, but nowadays I have to say with these young kids, with DJs and everything where they grow up, their first bird board was either a Ma two or now a Ma three. They're -hmm. going to have advantages over the the old veterans because they adapt to this new technology much quicker. I mean, I've, I've had to learn maybe a dozen boards in my lifetime and they're different languages. And these people that are uh, coming out now are code writers. They know in the ins and outs. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's, di- it's, it's, it's a whole different world. But, the, you know, the, one of the problems with that is, and, you know, you can be great on the console, but do you know what looks good, what makes a show? And, and can you deal with the artist? Can you deal with the manager as sure. well? You know, if you grow up staring at a computer screen, what are your social skills like? I mean, I know for a fact, Michael, you've gotten however many jobs and kept however many jobs because people like having you around. Entertainment. (laughs) Because I suck at lighting, hell. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was a nice way to put it. (laughs) Uh, Very very PC. You'll you'll very rarely end up in Keller's uh, HR department. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But it is, it is a different world out there now. And uh, I try to adapt. 
it doesn't always come as easy as I want it to. Mm-hmm. But it's part of the it's part of the game. If you don't adapt, it, you're going to be left behind. That's the reality. Yeah, from of what it. I've uh, the amount of times I've worked with you, you're doing a great job of adapting. You uh, you can definitely uh, hold your own with any of the young kids these days. Oh God, that's scary too. <laughs> of course, the yeah. young kids these days haven't done what you know. I think that I think that should be one of the prerequisites is having to have the go after a show, drink a bottle of vodka, do something that would keep you awake all night, and then show up at the morning and, and do your job. And then I'm impressed. <laughs> but my, Michael and I are going to start a school for lighting. I'm going to take, I'm going to, I'm going to handle all the daytime duties and then Michael will take them out at night and show them how to be true, true touring professionals. Call it uh, odd couple lighting or something. Oh, God, that'd be funny. <laughs> well, I, I still think, Chris, you should do a drunken uh, LD panel. Oh, that right? would be great. It'd that be would funny. be good. Uh, a little version of drunken history with. Uh, yeah, pretty much so. Now, uh-oh. Ethan, you, are you still um, three months now? Two no and beer? A half. No, I, I had one the other night. Oh, yeah. Now, see, now Ethan should have been Ozzy's LD because Mr. Weber, being from St. Louis, who happens to have a little hockey team there, for some reason, when Ozzy was arrested back in the old days, he was wearing a blues jersey. And I don't know why he's a blues fan. I have no idea. It's just not right. Now you now Chris, are you a Vegas Knights fan or? Uh, if I had to pick a hockey team, given my current location, I would have to go with either the Vegas Knights or the Toronto Maple Leafs. Oh yeah, that's uh, true. Yeah. If I wanted to afford to go see a show, I would have to go see the Detroit Red Wings across but the they, across but the they board. Suck. They, Last I heard, the Vegas Knights is more of a Canadian team than they are a Vegas team. It's apparently yeah, like seventy-five you, you, percent Canadian. You keep telling yourself that, kid. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they uh, they pull my my green card if I don't root for the the Ve- for the Canadians. That's right. That's right. Yeah, uh, they uh, they take away all my maple syrup if I don't if I don't say the right things. <laughs> And you're Canadian. Oh, you don't eat Canadian bacon, though. Damn. No, no, no Canadian bacon up here. Yeah, you, you, know, you, you know what they call it up here? What? Bacon. Bacon. Oh, yeah. bacon. What do, they call Ameri- what do they call American bacon? Uh, they just call it bacon. Up here, they call it ham. Ham, okay, okay. Should I get another drink, or? No, I think this is about all the time I got, buddy. I would love to... I think you should save that second drink for when I come see you. Hopefully, I'm coming see you in uh, the middle of June. So, oh, in Ju- June or July? July, sorry, July. July, July is perfect because you know if you come the fifteenth, my birthday is the sixteenth, so we can make a uh, a little to do. I think Mister right. Weber should come out just in case. I know Terry would love to have him. I'll get you an extra mask. Ethan, and you can uh, maybe I'll do a layover in Chicago on my way to. Yeah, perfect. 
Right Give on. me a ma- We should uh, get a, I want a mask of Ethan. He can have one of me. <laughs> then you guys can just do uh, musical chairs and sit in each other's, <laughs> yeah. for each other's show. <laughs> well, this is quite pleasant. Thank you. Yeah, I, I love yeah. this. I, I would absolutely much rather do this at a, at a nice restaurant. Yeah. But, uh, thank you, gentlemen, so much. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Chris. Okay. Nice one. Yeah, we'll yeah. talk soon, okay? 